afternoon, everyone. Today is Wednesday, November 29. After quite a long hiatus, we're back. And back, Jack, do it again. We've got uh, Larry Jetalo, a dear friend and a friend to this room. Been on numerous times, one of the uh, keenest observers of the global scene that I know. And I'm sure we're all keenly uh, interested to hear what Larry has to say. Before we get into it, I'm not going to waste too much time here, uh, as is our custom. I'm going to go do our three dates in history. I love doing this because even if you guys are bored from this, I learned something. Stuff we all learned in grade school, but we forgot. All right. So in 1520, um, Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan entered the Pacific Ocean um, with three ships. He became the first. European explorer to reach the Pacific uh, from the Atlantic. So that was in 1520. And this, there's three of them here. The second one, uh, I picked these out at random. Um, 1877, Thomas Edison demonstrated the hand-cranked phonograph, a record player for the first time. Wow, 1877. And finally, talk about coincidences, Tell me this isn't timely. On this day in 1947, November 29, 1947, the UN voted for a resolution for the partition of Palestine, splitting Palestine in half into an Arab and Jewish state. Small world. Anyway, enough of that. Um, so, so late hour where Larry is. Larry, for those of you that haven't heard him before, he's is, is founder and uh, proprietor of the, the Institutional Strategies TIS group based out of Minnesota. Uh, he's been in the business for over 40 years, held a variety of positions. I think once upon a time before I met him, he's actually a, zone, a gnome in Zurich for UBS, if I got that right, Larry. Um, and he ran money out of Switzerland. He worked for uh, Luthol Group and a bunch of other um, uh, positions before founding TIS Group in 1995. I've been a client for over 20 years, and I always learn something listening to Larry. What I like about Larry is he's got a very differentiated point of view, with a particular focus uh, on the global scene. He's a very good, very good thinker, strategist, and we're not going to have, I mean, there's a million different spaces you can go to on Twitter if you want to talk about the slope of the yield curve and whether having a recession, all that kind of good stuff. But Larry likes to think outside the box. So without further ado, Larry, I welcome you. And um, I want to just kick it off and have a go at it, and we'll get into some good Q&A. So, Larry, you're welcome. Good to, good to hear from you. Yeah, good to, good to be back, George. Um, can you hear me okay if I speak at this We're good. Time? We're good. All right, good. Well, I thought I would just start with five or six topics, and then you know, we can go from there and just see where people's interests lie. And the topics really are, uh, general macro topics, so equities, yields, dollar, gold, and then the Mideast situation. And if anybody's interested, I'd, I'd spend a minute on what's going on in Argentina, because I think it's actually going to turn out to be quite important and uh, is completely unpriced here. But let's just start with uh, equities, especially in the U.S., where we had, uh, November 1, uh, two buy signals in the way that we work. Uh, on U.S. equities, but there's a broader context for this. 
Um, the, the two models we use, one is internal of my making, <clears throat> and it's no good long-term, but it's very good short-term. And it, it went positive on uh, the night of October 30. The main factor that drove it was CTA positioning, which we put in our daily message that day. And it was obvious that the market was very short uh, of S&P futures. What I didn't know was how short they were. And I didn't really find out until about two weeks ago in, I was in Australia, where UBS was having their annual Asia conference. They had asked me to come and speak, which I did on a panel. Actually, I spoke three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the other panelists was a woman, very good, very, very good analyst named Rebecca Chiang from New York. And she had the number. Uh, she put her graph up of CTA positioning. And basically, she said at the point uh, we, where the market was at it on October 30, there was about $132 billion that needed to be covered by year end, which is like several months worth of buying in the mutual fund uh, area. So that explained a lot for me in terms of the very near term. But the second model is the really interesting one because that's a different model. It's not of my construction. I buy it and we've tweaked it. And I've worked with it for over 25 years. And basically, if you can envision a bell curve in your mind, and what I'm looking for is price in different time frames, I can ask the model, I can ask the program, tell me what the price of the S&P, where, where it's positioned in its life cycle over the next one to three months, or three to six months, or greater than six months. I can ask a commodity, I can ask it for rates, I can ask it for inflation, I can anything with a price, I can ask, and I get an answer. And what I've learned over the years in working with it is when you get a one in three month view and a three to six month view of the model turning from the right hand side of the bell curve, which is the bear side at the bottom, and it starts to flip to the left hand side, which is the bull side of the curve. Uh, and the stronger the signal is, in this case, I was looking at the S&P 500. And by strength of signal, I mean, on that night, uh, about 80% of the S&P's market cap flipped on the one to three month portion of the model from bearish to bullish. That was really unusual to have that much of the market. In fact, the only sector that didn't flip was energy. Um, But then something else happened. When we widened the search, we found that virtually all the major markets had flipped that night. Almost all the European markets, China flipped, Japan flipped, number of EM uh, countries flipped. So we had just a massive amount of the world equity market cap that looked to us like it was ready to go after several months of correction. We had our own model that was signaling uh, that the market was in the clear for one to three months. And then we changed the time frame and moved it out to three to six months. And we got the same answer. So what we did was we changed our allocations uh, we have the highest weighting in U.S. equities we've had for quite a while. Still don't have any bonds, but I'll get to bonds in a second. Um, we've been holders of gold, holders of miners, holders of energy stocks, which aren't aren't working now. They're not going to work, I don't think, for another month or two. But um, the point was we got long. We also got long, very long, in a sector that we got a lot of pushback on, and that was we got a second buy signal on the New York Stock Exchange Fanning Index, Um, So this is Microsoft, Apple, Google, and so forth, about 10 days later. 
And the way I've interpreted these models in the past is uh, we're going to get we're getting a run now that was started by a short squeeze, but then it's going to accelerate into year end. I think, and again, this is just a result of the client meetings we're doing. I think there are an awful lot of firms here that are benchmarked, uh, for instance, in the mutual fund area, who for for a variety of reasons, regulatory, fiduciary rules, lack of conviction, I mean, you name it, they've found all kinds of reasons not to have 29, 28% of their S&P weighted benchmark. Uh, they, they can't buy it. They won't buy it. They won't buy that much. And, and I've seen this in foreign markets as well. When I worked in Switzerland here, um, we had the same problem with the SMI. You just can't buy enough stock when you have a, a, a you know, a half a dozen names that basically dominate the index. So they lag. Well, what's going to happen now is uh, it, through year end is I think a lot of the long only benchmarked investors are going to have to play catch up. They may not buy the whole weight that they need in the FANG stocks and in tech, but tech in the models is leading. Um, there is a correction that's I call more of a pause, actually, than a correction that's already started to unfold about two days ago. It's probably the last chance to do anything here. And where I think we're headed, uh, for those of you who are around in 1999 and 2000, is it's not exactly the same setup, but it's it's similar, where I think we could be heading for a real blow-off. And on the longer-term model, the kind of six-month-plus model, this might be it for tech. That might be the top, but getting there could be extremely painful for benchmark investors who are not long enough of it, or you know, heaven forbid that you're short. So, I mean, I, I can go into more detail on some of this stuff in, in the second piece, but that's the message on equities is there's one more shot here, I think. Uh, the market interesting next year on the models is suggesting we, we do go up into Q1. There'll be a brief correction probably in Q2 early, roughly April, and then the market continues to work higher. So uh, I, I think if this if that's the way life works out, uh, we're going to find an awful lot of uh, managers, both in the hedge, long, short, all, all kinds of different strategies here. We're going to have a really difficult time with this. And there are other factors that play into this that I think might be new to people who weren't around during the inflationary years when I started in the late 70s, early 80s. This era of free money is over. And it's actually funny, George, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and I said, you know, when I started in 78, 79, 80, this all looks very familiar from where I started my career and now I'm coming toward the end of it. It just, it looks like it's a replay of where I started. And um, Bonds were not, they were not the asset class to own, and I still don't think they are, but let me talk about bonds here just for a second. Um, one of the things, uh, if you just look at a chart, just forget everything else for a moment, and look at the 10-year yield, I think it's around 430 today. So if I just, if I, I do this sometimes, I'll just I'll block out the name on the top of the chart. Just look at the chart and say, well, where is it going? Well, it looks to me like it's going to about 340. So if, if that's right, if we have another 50 to 100 bips lower to go, that would explain the equity market performance. It would also explain why tech would lead longest duration assets would uh, be the biggest beneficiaries. Um, but that also offers up one opportunity, I think, for the Fed and the U.S. government that they may not have again for a while. And that opportunity is, it is my belief that in some regards, the U.S. is reminiscent now of an emerging country and its finances. 
And what emerging countries do when they have to start attracting a lot of foreign capital because they can't fund their budgets, they can't fund their deficits, is they have to keep rates artificially high, and they do it on the short end of the curve if they can, which I think the U.S. now pretty much has to do. So we'll have, I don't think, much of a decline here in, let's call it less than five years on the curve. They're going to have to keep it up around four and a half, I think, to five percent. And they'll let the, the area of the curve beyond that, and I'm being imprecise here, but let's call it five to ten years, because they can't really raise much money there. We've all seen the busted auctions out at, you know, 30-year uh, paper. Um, essentially, what we're going to adopt, I think, in this U.S. will be something we did uh, from 1948 to 1955 after World War II, when, strangely, the budget, uh, excuse me, the debt-to-GDP ratio at that time coming out of the war was 120%. You look at it today, it's 120%. So in order to attract the capital, I think that we need to fund that debt, particularly the trillion dollar, it looks like about a trillion dollars in interest expense next year. I think that what they're going to have to do is adopt a form of YCC. They're going to have to pin the rates on the part of the curve where they're going to raise the most money. And that would be the short end of the curve. So the long end becomes sort of like a, a tail where it'll flop up and flop down. But um, I think this is, it, it was also a setup. I mean, history might actually be a very helpful thing to, to look at here. Is what happened is when they pinned the rate in 1948, they pinned it on the short end at 38 bips. It was too low. And actually, they pinned the 30 year at 200 bips, and that was too low. So the whole curve was too low. So anytime inflation was running over 2%, um, it, it, it was a gold mine for commodity investors and for equity investors. Those asset classes did very well. So it really, if they're going to, if they're going to do this, they're going to have to do it at a lower rate than where we were 30 days ago. And I think that's the, that's the key here is if, if in fact we get another 50 to hundred bips lower across the curve, that would be the time for the fed and the treasury to do this. And if they don't do it, uh, in my view, inflation is coming back. There is a second wave coming, and uh, they may have missed the opportunity of a lifetime. Now, as far as the dollar is concerned, if I'm right about rates, I'll be right about the dollar uh, weakening further. And if the dollar weakens further, stocks go up. Now, what will it weaken against? Um, the last couple, so it has to go down against something, <laughs> which is always the conversation we have with clients is, is what is it going to go down against? I mean, I I have real problems here in Europe. Uh, they're already in recession here in many countries I've been in, seeing how the euro can rise much further. Um, Sterling, I'll see the next couple of weeks. But I think if it's going, if the dollar is going to go down against something, it's probably against uh, the Chinese renminbi, which it has that's already already reversed now. Oh, about a week ago, they started to change some things in China, and the market began to act quite differently. And the other one may be a surprise, and that is uh, against the Japanese yen. Now, all that really has to happen there, I think, is uh, if, in fact, U.S. rates start to fall for domestic reasons and the Japanese continue to allow a bleed in their interest rate market, I don't think they'll just stop buying bonds suddenly. I don't think that's in their interest. But the bleed is that just the, the rates go just a little bit higher. That might be enough. So you get a stronger yen and a stronger RMB, and that's enough to push the dollar, not lower by a lot, 
but certainly enough to, to allow equities to continue to rally. It is extremely positive for gold, which is, is really one of the things I wanted to, to focus on for a second is uh, we have spent a lot of time looking at, we, we own gold, we own all forms practically that you can think of. We own bullion, we've owned the ETFs, we've owned miners, um, so that I'm um, clear about where I stand with it. I've, I've bought part of an Australian gold mining company personally, so I'm, I'm uh, putting my money where my mouth is. And on the charts, the gold price, and we wrote this about a month ago now, if we get a close over 2075 tomorrow, uh, a monthly close, then the gold target becomes 3,500 to 4,000. If we get a close over 2,100, there's a much longer term, well, it's a longer, it's a higher price target. I'm not sure about the timing, uh, how long this will take, but the target becomes 12,000. It's a six bagger. So these are really important prices uh, in terms of where gold is going to trade here in the next, it doesn't have to be tomorrow at the end of the month, it could be December, but it, it just looks to us like everything is falling into place here uh, for gold to have an enormous run. And I mean, I can give you just a good example here of, of uh, we're going to talk about the Middle East in a minute. That will certainly contribute the, the, uh, the instability that I see building in the Middle East. But there's something else that's much more fundamental. And I, I think, you know, I'm assuming most folks on the call here tonight are Americans. And we've, you know, we've witnessed what's happened to uh, oil prices in the U.S. over the last few years when CapEx uh, fell. It wasn't sufficient to supply us with enough oil in certain time periods. Um, and that helped prices firm. Uh, I was in Australia a month ago, and <clears throat> it's interesting, just a brief story. Uh, Australia is a country of 27 million people, and it has the fourth largest pension fund system in the world. How do you do that with 27 million people? Well, they do it by making a 7% mandatory contribution. Uh, employees make a mandatory contribution, and the companies then match it with another seven. So Basically, their pension system, their national pension system, grows by, in assets by about 14% a year without any appreciation. And there are companies there uh, that specialize in the management of those funds, and they're called superannuation uh, funds. They have uh, a massive problem in that their equity market also has a limited number of uh, companies large enough to absorb all the liquidity. So it, it's not a dissimilar problem to having a half a dozen names or maybe 10 names at the most in the index, which you have to buy an enormous percentage of your portfolio of just to maintain the benchmark, and many of them did not do so in recent years. So since the funds now are of such a uh, national interest, the regulator went into the market and decided that if you uh, underperform as one of those superannuation funds by an amount that they've prescribed, um, essentially what they can do is they can stop you from taking new contributions in. It's essentially a death sentence for these companies because all they can do then is manage what they have and then redeem. They can be redeemed, but that's it. They can't bring in new money. So what did they do? Not surprisingly, many of them have now become closet indexers. So they've bought up all the major companies to the maximum amount they can, and the money keeps coming in, and because that's where liquidity is, uh, that's where the new capital goes. And in the process, what has happened is um, when I went through the client base there one by one, 
almost every meeting they were telling me that small caps now in Australia are at multi-decade lows. And depending on who I was talking to, it was either a 10-year low, a 30-year low, a 40-year low, a forever low. And there are a lot of very cheap stocks there. And the reason is that the largest investors in their own country will not buy those stocks. And the comment was made to me multiple times that there simply is no money right now for small company or even mid-sized company resource investment in Australia of all places. That is probably the most extractive other than Saudi Arabia or some of uh, the Gulf countries. It's the most extractive economy on the face of the planet and they can't get their own small companies funded. So what I think is going to happen besides a number of other factors that should help gold here uh, enter a major bull market is they, it, it takes time. I mean, I'm learning this now as an investor in a, in a mining company. They're short people. They're not, they're short a bit of equipment. They're very short capital and starting a mine takes time. It takes, depending on the, you know, where you're doing it and how you're doing it, it can be up to two years and it's costly. So I, you know, it's too much to say you're going to run out of gold, but we're not going to have enough gold if we, we end our real bull market here. And so the targets I've got on gold, we are, uh, we are very, very comfortable with. Now, maybe just the last word here on uh, the Middle East and the situation there, because it plays into the gold market. And I think there's a couple uh, charts that uh, are maps and um, actually they're maps that George has put up for me. And just talk a bit about the situation there, because this is very bullish for oil as well. Uh, we're particularly bullish on energy equities. Um, <clears throat> there's one, I guess the map that's up there is, um, yeah, that's the uh, map of some of the it's a representation of some of the forces, some of the resources that the U.S. has put out uh, into the Middle East in just the last three months. And it's absolutely massive. The U.S. does not move this many people. It does not move this many ships, planes, subs, resources, and then not use it. What I'm what we, are, we think is evolving here, I'm going to just going to go backwards and then we'll, then we'll stop for a second. Uh, I'm going to go back to the Obama administration and why we're in the, they're in the situation they are now in the Middle East. In the Obama administration, they made a policy decision that uh, Iran, uh, well, that there was a nuclear problem in the Middle East. There was one country that had nuclear missiles. They've never admitted it. That would be Israel, but it's pretty well known and assumed that they do have uh, numerous uh, uh, nuclear tip missiles, and that the Iranians were building as fast as they could the capability of building their own nuclear weapons and launching them. And the decision they made policy-wise was that it would be a good idea if we could have sort of the same policy we had during the Cold War here in Europe, where uh, the United States had a massive weapons, nuclear weapons resource, that the Soviets had a massive nuclear weapons resource, and by pointing enough missiles at each other, neither side would shoot. Now, it, that worked. Um, and I've talked this through with a number of people here in Switzerland about why, it, why they think it worked. And I, I believe uh, they've got, the, got it right. Is it worked because the Russians were actually very pragmatic. There were a lot of Russians here over the years, a lot of Russians in the, in the banks here. And uh, I think in this case, they've misjudged uh, they're trying to apply that same model. They've misjudged the way the Iranians think about this. Um, I, I always 
you know, I was when I was coaching basketball in high school, I always told told my guys, believe what you see. I also, you know, I think believing what you hear uh, from people at the top of these governments, as outrageous as it might sound sometimes, we need to pay attention. And the Iranians have been saying for years they're going to blow Israel off the map. So I think the mistake that was made policy-wise in that administration was to start, it, well, it was the Iran deal. So now we have the new administration and many of the same people who were active, Blinken, Sullivan, Biden, uh, were active in the Obama years, uh, are trying to, to I, I believe, uh, realign the Middle East so that there is a balance of nuclear power. They're also running into something else, which was our information is that the Israelis and the Saudis were ready to sign a peace deal by the end of December. And the Iranians simply could not have that. That's why the war started. So now every, you know, the, the boogeyman is really out of the box here. And <clears throat> the U.S., I think, is in part moved the resources that we see on that map there, partly to keep the peace. But we also have a secondary view about this, and that is once the Gaza war is over, and I think it will be prosecuted to the end, these countries, um, Saudis, the Egyptians, uh, Jordanians, uh, they are not opposed to having Hamas gone. But the fight will really be in the north uh, when it turns on Hezbollah, because they're much more powerful than Hamas was. They are Iranian-backed. They take the orders from the Iranians. And that's where the fight's really going to turn. And we don't hear much about it in the States, but they've, there've already been bombings in the Damascus and the Aleppo airports. This is, this is, uh, this is preparation on the way. And I think now the oil, to just translate this into markets for a moment, the oil geopolitical premium that existed in the Middle East for years is no longer there. I think the, the price where it is now, I think Brent's about 82, 83. I mean, just on fundamentals, the EIA says we need $120 oil just to clear the market. And I've been arguing for years here, I've been arguing too long, actually, that there would be one more realignment in this area. And it would result with the price of oil uh, spiking to levels nobody expects. And I, if you just look through the energy companies, you know, we just, we had Pioneer, which Exxon just bought. But there's a lot of energy companies here that we're looking at that you can buy for you know, PE multiples far less than 10 with dividend yields north of five, big companies like Shell, good companies like Exxon. And they're not ESG friendly, not yet, um, but that's a whole other topic. So when the timing of this is, I, you know, it's not now, it's not today. It's going to take the U.S., I think, at least six months to move everything that is needed out there. Um, uh, for things to kick off. I mean, for instance, I, we've, we've heard that there's like 17 days of jet fuel for the air. You know, this, that's just not enough. You can't fight a 17-day war in the air. Um, so it will take time. But I think next year, somewhere after Q2, and I know this runs counter to what I said about equities, but I think it's coming. And I wouldn't put any longer of a time frame on that than 25. I think 25 is actually going to be the year when we do have the recession and we do have the war breakout. And we, we have a whole different conversation to have then about markets. So, George, I'm going to stop there and have at it. That, that's terrific, Larry. Uh, anyone have questions, please uh, please raise your hand. 
So I'll throw a couple at you. Um, let's go back to let's, let's start. Let's pick up pick up where you left off with the Mideast uh, and oil and the dollar and um, the UAE. I think today said something that they wouldn't take dollars anymore for yes settlement and oil and whatever. Yeah. So could we go in a little bit to the extent you can talk about what you? I mean, there are a lot of people out there who would, a lot of other countries out there who wouldn't shed a tear if the dollar lost its uh, hegemonic status. Um, and, you know, given this sort of unsustainable fiscal uh, situation that we're on, a path that we're on, uh, and we're borrowing money from everybody else, I mean, it seems like the pressures are coming to bear. So maybe just opine a little bit more on, on, on the outlook for the dollar, particularly in the context of the sort of geopolitical uh, situation. I mean, the Chinese, the Saudis, the Russians, and a lot of people who, uh, you know, again, wouldn't shed a tear if the dollar were to, were to, were to go weaker. But again, we got a problem here because we have to fund our deficit. So how, what does that all add up to for you? Um, well, the U.S. has two great assets. We have a lot of assets, but there's two, two that are really um, difficult to um, replace. Uh, one of them is our military, which in terms of size and capability, probably still eclipse everyone else on, on the planet. And we can enforce our will if we want to, our political will. The other one is the dollar. Um, and I've, I mean, I've said before publicly, so happy to say it again, I think the U.S. would do just about anything to maintain the dollar's reserve currency status because it allows us to print any amount of money to get out of a depression, a recession, fight a war, do them all at the same time. It gives us a flexibility that nobody else really has on the planet. They're not going to give that up easily. Now, on that other map that you had up there, my, my evil yellow map that's been on the deck for years, George, I mean, I put that there on purpose. There's a line that says um, Iraq priced oil in euros and Saddam fell. That's exactly what happened. He threatened to put Iraqi oil sales, uh, oil sales, uh, sales excuse me, uh, into euros, and we invaded him shortly after. Now, uh, in Libya, Gaddafi tried to do the same thing. He tried to go off the oil standard as well, and uh, excuse me, the dollar standard, and look what happened to him. The UAE is fascinating because they are widely perceived as an ally to the U.S. They did, in fact, say today they're going to start accepting um, other current. They, they, but they've been doing this for a while. So I'm not sure exactly why they've announced this so publicly other than to make the statement that um, they're open for business. And I, I know they're getting a lot of pressure from India. And I think they may have done some deals actually with India where they paid in rupees and from China. Uh, to open those markets up and allow transactions to be done, you know, for oil out of, uh, away from the dollar. That's something I just don't think the U.S. will countenance. Uh, so I'm interested in this going further in this topic, not just for the sake of, you know, whether once you buy or sell the dollar, but the same about capital flows. And you were put, let's yep. put the pieces together. Talk about Japan before. Yep. Um, and, you know, talk about U.S. exceptionalism, well, uh, the, the, the Magnificent Seven, whatever. I mean, it's coincided with, you know, tremendous uh, deficit spending here. Um, sucked in. Yeah, it's true. We've got some unique technology companies, but there's been a, a macroeconomic backdrop to this whole thing. So, and again, you may want to talk in different time frames. There's a very short run and there's a longer term. Do you think and it's and I'm asking this? It's more important for just capital flows and you know whether people can make emerging markets and whether the U.S. won't be the apple of everyone's eye. And I see we've got Mike, the great Michael Howell in the room. He may want to weigh on this as well. But do you have any bigger thoughts about 
um, is this is this something of longer term significance or that's just too hard to predict at this point and for the short run is, is, is all you're willing to go out on a limb. Well, I mean, it's, I think the the organization of the BRICS countries is actually potentially quite important. Now I, I talked to a lot of people who say, no, 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 they'll never, you know, they, they can't approach the U S look, look at how weak they are. Maybe you can just interject here for a minute about what's going on in Argentina, because I, I think this actually may have a role in what the system looks like, which is, I think that's really your question going forward. Does it include the dollar or not? And if, if it does include the dollar, what role is it? So, you know, if you're not familiar with, they just had an election in Argentina and they, they elected a guy who definitely needs a haircut, but he also announces himself or describes himself as an anarcho-capitalist. Um, and he had, one of his ideas is to re- replace or end, actually end the Argentinian central bank. Now, <clears throat> the, I'm going to just skip here and just for a minute to another country. I listened to the Singapore central bank chief the other day. And he said the future of the financial system globally is going to encompass three new areas. There'll be three, three things that will be used. Uh, CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. The second thing that will uh, be launched will be tokenization of bank liabilities. The third thing will be a stable coin that actually works. He didn't say anything about central banks. He didn't say anything about dollars. Now, you don't really need, I don't think, a central bank in the kind of financial world that he's describing. So here we have a guy who's now the duly elected leader of Argentina. I believe he probably was funded by bankers. They some, somehow got organized down there um, after, I mean, that used to be one of the 10 richest countries in the world. They've had 100 years of just disastrous economic policy, disastrous inflation. They, I think it was 140% this year. And what I think is happening is they brought some, the powers that be have brought this guy in, and he's the science experiment. And Argentina is a science. If it doesn't work, if the adoption of a non-dollar or or some kind of a new system that might include all those things that the central bank chief in Singapore discussed, and it doesn't work, how much worse can it be? You know, let's write it off and say, well, it's Argentina. But what happens if it works? And I don't think it's going to take a whole heck of a lot here to make things better in Argentina. I don't think there, there's one other possibility here, and I'm all I'm all wrong about where this goes, and instead they dollarize it. By the way, uh, I, I saw this afternoon that uh, the new Argentina president basically is starting to turn his back on China, and China's been funding them, funding them with currency swaps. They've had the rights to put a satellite tracking station down in southern Argentina. They can watch everybody's satellites that go across the southern hemisphere. They wanted to build a port in Tierra del Fuego. Basically, China was taking over Argentina, and all of a sudden, this guy gets in office, and he's going to reverse all of that. This, this is a big deal. And 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 by the way, so I put a one percent uh, allocation in the Argentinian index, which we'll we'll see how this goes. But um, you know, for the dollar, it's just the, it's like the countdown is beginning. Right. Um, just staying with that, running with the political angle. And again, I don't want this to devolve into a big political discussion. Um, so you've had in Argentina this surprise election you had in the Netherlands. Gerald uh, Builders get elected. Yep. Um, I think it was in New Zealand. There was a similar right uh, yes. right leaning drift. I, I'm, I'm missing one or two others. But 
is this is this a seed to something bigger? Do you believe? And I, I don't know, if you, Penny, for your thoughts about the election situation here in twenty twenty four in the United States. Well, here in Europe, um, they have an emerging immigrant problem. I mean, it's it's obvious here. Um, Germany, the second largest political group now, is the AFD, which is a conservative group. Um, on the news here every night, whether I watch a French channel, a German channel, a Dutch, it doesn't matter what channel I look at. They're all highlighting this as, a, as an issue that's just gotten out of control. They can't afford it. The crime is going through the roof. I think what's, what's coming here is deep deportations. And it's going to come from some countries like Germany, where I would never in a million years have thought they would actually start deporting people. But I think they are going to now. And it's going to become politically popular to do so. Now, here in Switzerland, where I am now, uh, it's been very odd this week because there are uh, police everywhere. They're in the train stations. They're on the trains. They're walking down the Bahnhofstrasse. They're making themselves very, very visible. And when I ask the locals here, what's going on? This is what they name is the, migra the migration problem. I think this is going to come to the states as well. But for now, it's centered here in um, continental Europe and in the UK. I don't know what it does to the markets, if anything, but I can tell you that economically, um, this is going to create some turmoil. A little, just a little more perspective on what's going on in Europe. Things are still pretty, um, economies in, what, 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 what's your observation on, on this trip to Switzerland that, you know, what, I know you're a regular traveler there, but what do you, what strikes you, um, in terms of a change at the margin and what's going on in Europe? Um, mar marginal recessions in some of the bigger, the bigger markets, um, like Germany. Um, here, in, and they have, by the way, they've hit their 2% inflation target here. They're at 1.6 or 1.7, mostly because of the strong currency. But it just looks to me like things have slowed down. It's not bad. It's not a, you know, they're not, they're not in a deep recession, but it has slowed down. That's pretty obvious. I mean, I'm prices, for instance, the things I use, like airplanes and hotels and, and so forth, they're actually pretty reasonable. So I, I think we're, they're at a little bit different point in their cycle here than we are in the U.S., and actually, the, it's interesting in the U.S., I mean, the government is just still spending money like, uh, <laughs> I mean, we'd be in recession if it wasn't for all the government spending in the last year. Here, they're actually running up against uh, some, some debt problems in the German government. I think they can't spend, I think they can't, they've hit their debt limit, I believe it is, through year end, and they're, they're actually trapped. They can't spend any more money. So um, it's a different picture here. But it's really, the thing that's different is the migrant problem, the immigration problem. So, Larry, just staying on the spending issue for one second, and given that, you know, we have an election year coming and nobody gets elected by cutting spending, at least that's <laughs> that doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, doesn't it fall to the role of Mr. Market to apply discipline? And, and, and are we not looking at case ultimately? Maybe it's just too long term, but I, I kind of remind of Stein's law, you know, that which can't go on won't. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just extraordinary the deficits that we're running and you know, supposedly we're not in a recession. Uh, I mean, does this inform sort of your 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 longer term dollar view? This just seems crazy what we're doing here. It's not sustainable. So I think you've written about the need to monetize this, and it's one of the reasons why you think we're going to be again. Forget about the next few months, but looking at longer term, you think we're in a higher interest rate, higher inflationary era. If I understand you correctly. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of repeating what happened from 1963 to 80 with a little bit, you know, a little bit of a twist, but. After we had, uh, you know, the first run-up from two to six percent CPI, 
from 63 to 70, we had about a 30-month uh, hiatus, which we're in now. We're in about the 20th month. So we could go another, you know, middle of next year. That would be a, a normal repeat. But then we had the second boom in inflation, and it was, it was the Middle Eastern War that kicked it off. Oil prices went through the roof. The currency markets reformed after Bretton Woods. I mean, we could see all of those things happen again very easily in this cycle. Right. Awesome. And I, I, I just, I, I, uh, that's my bet is that we're going to see some variation of that. Got it. All right. I'm going to stop badging you with questions. I'll turn it over to some others in the room. I've got some more for you, but let's first go to uh, Ramos and then Ramos. And if, after Ramos, we'll go to Daniel Ramos. Welcome. The floor is yours. Hey, how's it going? I appreciate you taking my question. Um, really, really great uh, talk, Larry. Um, I was just wondering, going back to your comments on um, energy equities, and um, and I believe you said you were bullish um, on them, in terms of their their sort of relative underperformance um, of energy equities versus the commodity itself, and and you mentioned um, Exxon's uh, acquisition of Pioneer. I was just wondering, in terms of uh, like that acquisition was a, a stock, a, an all stock. Um, uh, purchase and do, do you think there's any information there? Are you concerned, perhaps, of uh, like that they maybe think that the stock's overvalued? Uh, I'm just wondering why you believe um, there's been this uh, underperformance versus the the commodity itself. And um, yeah, just just your thoughts on that. I appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Well, I think part of it is is ESG regulation. Part of it was just the stigma that investment managers have. They're, they're, in some cases, I mean, they've said this to me, is they're, they're afraid to put too much uh, fossil fuel exposure in their portfolios. Now, I have also seen it start to sneak into portfolios, which is the interesting thing. My, my own view, um, Ramos, is that this whole ESG thing uh, was set up by, basically by the UN. It was a government set up timeline and uh, targeting without any or, or very little, if any, uh, respect for how markets would behave. And the, it being an arbitrary timeline, it's 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 not going to work. And and I think it's become going to become very obvious. I mean, all over Europe here, there. That's another big topic here: is how do you get your power? Well, here in Switzerland, they get hydropower and they import from France. Uh, in Germany, they need gas, which is another reason I'm really bullish on this stuff in the states. Is um, natural gas in the U.S. is I think it's what three bucks a million cubic feet or something now. Over here, they're paying 11, and these contracts that are being run to the U.S. Uh, LNG carriers, you know, they're getting 20-year contracts here, and there is a, you know, the people I talk to in Texas tell me they think that basically that $3 gas they're going to be sending out here is going to be priced anywhere from 10 to 15 by the time it gets to Europe because the Russian gas will not come back. So, you know, I, I just I look at all that and I think, well, OK, so why did Exxon do this? Well, I think they did it because they basically bought um, the one area really in the country uh, where you still got growth in production. And that's the Permian. And that's what that's where Pioneer was. Uh, that, that's what was the basis of the assets. Um, this, and and it's, it's actually interesting time to look at Exxon, too, because because it was a stock for stock deal. The ARBs have been selling Exxon and, and, and buying PDXD. So when the deal closes, the ARBs will have to cover the shorts, and off you go. So that's how I looked at it. Th th thanks, Ramos. Uh, Daniel, long time. Good, good to see you. What's on your mind, Daniel? The floor is yours. Daniel, you there? 
Oh, yeah, I'm here. Sorry. There, there you go. What's up, man? Yeah, how are you, George? We're good. We're good. You got a question for Larry? Yeah, good to see you, Larry. Yeah, Larry, I just wanted to know your thoughts on uh, the bonds. I'll just keep it very broad and like to hear your thoughts on on the bonds. On, like, uh, specifically 10 years. And uh, I'm not a super expert on this, but I uh, just want to know your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the ten years, uh, ten-year treasuries, we we think the yields will drop about another fifty to hundred basis points, and it'll be now. Uh, that will be the close. That'll be the low in inflation expectations as well, and then they will both turn up. So the next high I have on the ten-year yield is six ten, six point ten. So it's going to be a very meaningful run if it goes. If I'm right. And it goes from three and a half to six ten, but I think that's probably a twenty twenty five event. Yeah, I wow, you you said exactly what I was thinking. The three and a half, three point seven area was one to look at for the low. And okay, great, thank you. That was all I wanted to hear. Thanks, Daniel. Okay, we next now go to another friend, Surya Japan. The floor is yours. Good to see you. How you been? Uh, hi, thank you for taking my question. I'm very excited that my gold is finally and miners are finally starting to work. But I would like to ask about silver. If we will get a recession, which I think we will get at some point, what do you think about silver? Is it going higher with gold or lower because uh, because of industrial demand? And second question will be, what do you think about coal companies? Thank you. Uh, silver will go will go up with with uh, gold. In fact, usually at the end of the moves, uh, it tends to outperform gold. But that's a ways away. I mean, we own silver. We own some silver equities. There aren't many to own, but we're we're, we're long. Um, I didn't quite catch the second question though, George. Did you? It was about coal companies. Coal. Coal. Did yeah, you say coal? Yeah, yeah, Larry. So the question is the gold stocks. As opposed oh, the companies. To the companies. Yeah. Uh, oh no, yeah, yeah. Sorry, no. uh, coal, coal, C O. Oh, oh, coal, coal. Oh, it is coal. Oh, okay. Coal. That, yeah. that's the that's the new black gold, I guess. Coal. Yep. <laughs> Can't help you on that one, sir. Sorry. <laughs> I don't watch them. Okay. Thank you. Cheers, Larry. One of uh, your interesting uh, trademarks. You always talk about. Um, it's always interesting questions you're not asked. Um, mm-hmm. So what's not, what are people not focusing on or not in your study? For instance, I've read in some quarters that despite the fact Japan's gone to, you know, multi-decade highs, no one really cares about Japan. I, I don't know, I'm just throwing stuff out. Would you do China being given up for, for dead or whatever? I mean, what are you not being asked Do you think there possibly might be an opportunity? I'm not asking you to be contrarian. I'm not being a dumb contrarian. But, you know, what, what's, what strikes you is just suffering totally from complete indifference and in, in, in being avoided. Uh, geographically, we get no questions about anything in South America where there are a few things to do. It's not, you know, it's not the uh, easiest place to invest. But, you know, if I look around the world, that's one. The second place I get no questions is about investing in the Middle East. Yet, I, I know we've had... Uh, We've had some friends go out to the Middle East, uh, talk to the Saudis, talk to MBS, interviewed MBS, and they are extremely impressed with this guy. Um, they want to invest there, as he and he's you know if you, if you watch what he's doing, he's buying sports companies and art and 
soccer teams and all the rest of it. And basically his pitch is if he can do this and bring tourists in, that's the next thing. I guess in Saudi Arabia is they're going to start bringing tourists in, hope, hopefully, to see these things. He's, you know, if you can uh, raise your GDP by, you know, from three to four percent, why not do it? And I, I think that's a big. There's no not much Western capital out there, but they don't need it. They have plenty. So I, Middle Eastern, China, China. We the number of questions have really gone away. They're not completely gone, but the the consensus there is it's uninvestable. I mean, I hear that. I heard it all over Asia. I hear it all over your anywhere I go. It's now uninvestable, okay. which is making me think George we're close here to having something actually go right for those guys. And if you want to talk tech, I mean, I can show you Chinese tech companies that are trading at ten times earnings with thirty, forty percent growth rates. Never got a question about them. Staying with, yeah, just just staying on tech. Do you find? Let's go the other way. Do you? Because I think it was something you wrote recently, if not even someone else. I read where. Uh, I think it was talking to European institutions. They're avoid. They're sort of viewing the Magnificent Seven or U.S. tech as sort of you know unique assets. It's almost like an alternative to a government bond fund or whatever. Yeah. And there's no other place you can put. I think I think you wrote that. Um, does that does your sort of uh, man? I know you think that this, this leadership will continue to go up, but um, to strike you as just sort of top of mind in most places that you go in terms of interest. Um, they, they will bring it up. Usually I bring it up before they do because mm. most, most of the time they're going to get there anyway. Um, they own it here. They, they own a lot of this stuff. In fact, you know, if I had to, if I had to guess, uh, you know, Switzerland's always a good measure for this. Um, if I was looking at the buy list for a lot of these banks, my guess is it's the big seven stocks and not much else in the States. Does that, does that call, by the way, I haven't looked at uh, the BIS, was it BIS or the, the, the uh, no, SMB. Is the, is the SMB still, still, still hodling these stocks? I mean, they've done incredibly well, I, I would imagine, if they, if they have. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, we talked to somebody the other day, and I said, you still have all that Apple? Oh, yeah, we're quite happy. Best holding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Oh, but, oh, no. Someone called security, security. We got another card-carrying member of the Minnesota Mafia in the room right next to Larry, our good friend Dave Nikoski. Dave, good to see you. Um, I Thanks guess, for having me up, George. You, Appreciate it. You guys are gophers, right? Is that it was go right? Yeah. Minnesota gophers, right? Minnesota there. gophers. All right, okay. So I'll, I'll let I'll let you I'll let you two have, have at it. Dave, the floor. Is yeah, I want to bounce something off of Larry. Um, you know, back in 2002, the U.S. dollar remained strong even throughout the the bubble up until about April of 2002. Mm-hmm. When the dollar broke that up uptrend, you saw a repatriation. You know, the U.S. markets have been the hottest in the world for 20 years since then. Mm-hmm. Do, do you see? You know, there is a it, it's an anomaly. You know, I've made one call in my career in 38 years um, that there would be a repatriation um, upon that break. And if you look at the U.S. dollar index and look at the S&P during that April of 2002, you know, th- this market seems eerily similar to me where, you know, if the dollar does break the longer term uptrend, which is considerable distance from here, um, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have three thoughts. Uh, what it could, what could well happen here, and something has to happen, I, I think, David, to help fund the deficits we're, we're looking at. 
Um, here in Switzerland and across Europe, they've done something for years, and that is they changed legislation and they forced pension funds and insurance companies to buy a certain percentage of their assets in government bonds. We haven't done that yet, but I think eventually we'll get there. The second thing is I think we're going to have to have tax hikes, and that will come not next year because it's, you know, it's obviously an election year. And you don't win by, well, Monter, our fellow gopher, Walter Mondale, proved that in 1984, didn't he? He, he, he said he was going to raise taxes, and he got, I think Reagan beat him 49 to 1 or something. Um, I think that's probably a topic for 25 as well. But the third thing is is actually repatriation. That's what you're suggesting. I think, I mean, they've done this before where they've made it more attractive um, for U.S. companies uh, and investors to repatriate monies back. And, I, and this, I think, would all be directed at uh, an effort to help fund the deficit. Um, the other possibility, I think, in terms of the repatriation, is I noticed this morning that I think U.S. equities are at, they may be at an all-time high in terms of the market weight, MSCI world. And if you go back and look, I mean, it, that, it, Japan did this, I think, in 1990. That was the last big call. No, it wasn't the last big call in Japan. That was 2012. But in 1990, uh, I think Japan was 50. But George would know this. What, what were they, like 55 60% George of the MSCI world? I could tell you that Japan got up to 66% of IFA, which is the, for those that don't follow that index, it's the non-US S&P, if you will. It was 66, yeah. 66% of IFA. Um, and I, 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 I haven't looked lately, but what is it, like 10 or 15 or something now? Some crazy low number. I, I don't know what it is, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things you don't see at the bottom, as they say. Um, yeah, so it's been 22 years, basically. Uh <laughs> Uh, money was money left. It it left the Japanese market, and that's that's well, the other thing I really wonder about. David is um, there's a I mean, there's a price for everything, as you know, and right now the price. I mean, it, although I said tech is still the leader, it's expensive. It's going to get more expensive. This really reminds me a lot of late '99 and early 2000. Absolutely, I, I'm we, on that same page, and you know everything that occurred when when the dollar. Uh, did break that uptrend. You know, that was the mm -hmm. commodity rain, you know, yeah. from 2003 to 2009. Mm -hmm. So I, I see a lot of very, very similar patterns, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking through, you know, even, the, you know, we, we became bullish on the coal stocks. It was June of 20. You were breaking the long-term downtrend, the KOL index stopped trading and, you know, coal yeah. just went straight up. AMR is up, I think, 18 times greater than NVIDIA since june of 20. wow you know so there's there's things that people don't talk about that you know when you're looking at relative strength you know i'm very bullish brazil um don't like the leader but you know that doesn't tell it i can certainly see funds are flowing in there um as and i like latin you know uh, all of south america actually looks much better than other emerging countries um, Mexico, we've seen a huge, uh, you know, a significant amount of uh, reshoring. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mexico looks great. You see, they just, uh, you know, surpassed China in terms of uh, imports into the United States um, from Mexico. But, you know, it, it seems to me, you know, China's the second largest investor in Mexico behind the U.S. So you're not getting a real GDP number from China because they have you know, invested in so many other countries that we're importing from. So it's it's not a real accurate assessment, I don't think, from a GDP standpoint, that's, which you see in China. That's absolutely correct. 
So, 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 Dave, as you look at the charts, are we possibly setting up for a scenario where, and again, I'm not talking about next week or next month, but looking at over the next couple of years, you know, a few years, if they, they, the, and, and the world's at very heterogeneous place. I get it. I mean, Europe's not the same as South America, but do you think there'd be areas, regions, be it Latin America, Japan, whatever, where you might do a lot better than just buying the S&P? You know, my, my view has been, um, the U.S. migrates and and builds up a country for a long period of time. You know, during during the eighties, you know, nineteen eight nineteen seventy, no one knew what a Honda or a Toyota was in the U.S. You know, by nineteen, you know, end of nineteen eighty, everyone knew what a Honda and Toyota was. You know, we built Japan to what they were, and they collapsed in eighty nine under the same scenario that China is having difficulties, which is real estate. Um, now we're we're pulling the levers and and moving out of China and the next move again, much like that te- ten year period from 1970 to 1980, we're we're looking for. I I, I want to say the U.S. and I term it and don't take this in a bad way for you know anyone that's pro American as I am because I am American. But you know we use financial imperialism. You know, we we find a, a cheaper way to produce goods that we can't cheap here. You know, we locate, relocate dirty energies into other countries. Um, you're seeing that with, you know, even um, Germany today. You know, Michelin is closing down three plants. They can't build tires. They just took one of their large steel plants and put it in Brazil. You know, so we're, we're finding our next opportunity for the next 20 years to build up, you know, and I would say it's, in my opinion, I think it's going to be South America and Mexico. Yeah. Yep. And watch Brazil. I'm, I like Brazil. I've been all over it. Yeah. Love I it. Was, yeah. I was having a talk the other day with a guy. It's uh George, you probably know, I won't say his name. He's a very famous EM investor out of Boston. And um, he was the one who said to me, he said, you got to watch what's going on now in Argentina, Brazil, and the U.S. Because uh, if if they get together and align, he just went, wow. <laughs> I mean, just think about the resource power of those three countries if they align. Yeah. It's also, um, I'm sure we've all seen that table. If not, I can, I can uh, retweet it out. I think it comes from GavCal. They show by decade the uh, 10 largest market caps in the world. And mm-hmm. um, both, 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 both of you gophers would, would know this. You know, you go back to uh, early 80s, it's energy stocks. And, you know, late 80s, it's Japan. And then you get the tech stocks. And then you get the financial stocks, commodity stocks, the China stocks, wash, rinse, repeat. So here we are. It's, you know, U.S. tech. Um, so it's not obvious when it's happening. Uh, and I'm not saying that then we should sell these stocks, but I kind of wonder 10 years from now what it's going to look like. Um, I think we'll, it's, it's the one thing that's constant is change. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, be curious to see how, how this works. The values are certainly there. It's a question of whether the macroeconomics back it up. But David, I'm encouraged to hear that you think the charts are, charts are looking that way. Um, so... All right. Any other, uh, by the way, um, if anyone's interested, Larry, uh, if you're interested in learning more from Larry, um, you can obviously uh, DM him um, or his email address is Larry.Jetalo. That's J-E-D-D-E-L-O-H, Larry.Jetalo at TISgroup.net. Or if you need further help, just contact me. 
Um, like I said, I've known Larry for decades and, uh, I think it's, he's really, um, you know, got a differentiated point of view. Um, and so it's find it, uh, extremely helpful in my decision-making process. Um, Karpathy, good to see you, my friend. Uh, welcome to the, welcome. The floor is yours. How welcome. You? Thanks, George, for having this. A, a couple of real quick technical questions. I missed some things. I had some technical issues earlier. You were talking about. 2075 uh, on gold, 3,500, 4,000. And then you said another number, which I missed, would be 12,000. What was that number, Larry? 2,100. Okay. It's close above 2,100. I, I yeah. guessed that, but I wanted to make sure the second part, I want to clarify it because I too think that, and I've said this on previous spaces, all roads lead to yield curve control, but they're not going to call it that. And they'll call it something else, some bullshit name. But um, you mentioned my antenna went up when you said the forced pensions. I also believe that do you think they'll go as deep as uh, means testing an IRA if it's over X amount of capital, if you want to retain your tax deferred status or Roth status? You have to have, you know, name a percentage in treasuries. Thanks, and I'll listen. Um, yes, I think they'll take it deeper than, I mean, it's, it's already happened here in Switzerland. It's interesting to talk to people about, um, I'll give you an example. This isn't a pension example, but I was having uh, coffee yesterday with a former client. He's retired now, so he's a retired investment manager. And uh, we were talking stocks, and I and he, you know, I said, well, um, I mentioned the Exxon thing. And he said, oh, he said, that's too short term because the way the tax authorities look at it here is if they decide that I'm investing for a living, I don't get the capital gains tax break. And I said, well, how do they determine whether or not you're investing for a living? And he said, they're very vague about it. It's a gray area but they know what I did for a living. And if I trade too much, they will come back and declare me to be investing. Can you believe this? Investing for a living. And they, it, so to otherwise here, um, capital gains are zero. So you go from zero to maybe 40% if they if they arbitrarily decide that you're, you're actually trying to make a living trading your own money. I mean, and, and it's, you know, it's really at the discretion of the tax authority, who, by the way, here, I think are actually quite good. They're quite fair. But I just I think that's in, it's illustrative of, of what's coming, and it's not just in the U.S. I mean, all these indebted uh, first world countries, they're hunting for. Uh, um, well, look what the U.S. did. We're going to hire eighty-seven thousand IRS agents. I mean, <laughs> to do what? Basically, I think it's to go at people that have never been audited before. It's not the upper class; it's the middle class. That's where the tax revenue is, and it's in the pensions. It's it's in it's in everybody's four hundred one ks and their Roths and their IRAs and um, I think that's I think that's coming, and, yeah. but it's not going to come next year. It's going to be twenty five or later. Large IRAs, they're screwed. Large Roths, basically, I'm screwed. They've got every fingerprint. I've been in every federal FINRA database and FAA forever. So, thanks. <laughs> thanks anyway. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Carpathia. Uh, let's now go to, oh, Billy, 
Billy Big Bucks. How are you, my friend? Good to see you. What's going on, Billy? Hey, George. Uh, nice to be here. Um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm taking that space. Uh, I don't know, maybe uh, you know, 40 minutes late, and but you know, I, I had a, a question, and maybe you you covered that uh, ground before, but you know, 2020, 2021 was like, uh, or 2021 was like the mother of all speculations, right? I mean, you had, uh, you know, the Kathy Woods stock, uh, you had crypto, you had the metaver uh, metaverse, uh, you had SPACs. Um, you had IPOs, you know, like snowflakes at 100 times revenues, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, for sure, uh, you know, it's, it feels, it seems like, you know, uh, you know, the top in 2021, you know, would have been, should have been the, the you know, the top in, uh, you know, in high tech and, and uh, you know, 2022 was, uh, was um, you know, a tech wreck where, you know, all these uh, crazy stocks, you know, collapsed by, uh, you know, 70%, 80%, and, and, you know, some of the large cap stocks, you know, the Mag Magnificent Seven, or, you know, the FANGs, or, uh, you know, whatever the acronyms, you know, the, I mean, stocks like Google, Amazon, and so on went down, you know, by 40 and, and, and 50%. And you would have thought that after, after, you know, something like that, you know, the sector would have, uh, you know, at, at the very least, you know, been dead for quite some time. And, and here we are in 2023, and you know we 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 back into uh, you know these uh, like the magnificent seven you know new name but same stocks um, you know with some of them breaking to new highs like Microsoft and and Apple and you know I don't recall any sort of huge speculative uh, bubble like you know 20, 2020, 2021, uh, you know uh, being you know uh, being uh, one down like in twenty twenty two and then. You know, a few months later, the same stocks are, you know, making new highs at uh, ever high, you know, ever higher valuations. How do you, you know, how do you explain that? Is that for George or for me? Uh, for for anyone yeah. who's who's you know can enlighten anyone. me. Plus, you know, plus the fact that you know interest rates have moved from uh, from zero to five percent. Mm-hmm. I can give you a, a, maybe a, a, a stab at it because it's, it's what I think has been adopted. View has been adopted by some of the institutional guys that I talk to. Uh, a number of them have described to me now. I've asked them that question: Is why? Why did you do it now? Why? Why are you buying these now? And they said because they're defensive growth. I mean, some of the some of these guys are actually looking at these. They, they're not assured growth. They don't say that, but they they are liquid. They know they can get out. They grew even through a, a slowdown. They'll grow through this slowdown. It's better than a bond. Those are the answers they're giving me. And I don't know what the right multiple is for that. I'm not sure they know. But what I do know is they don't want to own bonds if they don't have to. So well, that, that'd be Then the liquidity piece to that is, is really important because it, they're actually more liquid now than some parts of the Treasury yield curve. Okay, but when 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 you were saying when you saying you know you don't know what multiple you know it should be, but I mean, you know one thing is certain uh, you know I would think is that the multiples got to be considerably lower at five percent interest rates than uh, zero percent interest rates. So and and you know and the multiples are uh, higher. Well, then we need to think about why that is. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, uh, Larry, what you were talking before about defensive, I mean, I know if you look at getting away just from the idiosyncratic nature of these stocks, so they are unique. If you just look at, by factor, what's working uh, in the market, um, the market's been favoring companies, you know, with uh, general generalized basis, strong balance sheets, uh, high uh, interest coverage ratio, strong cash flows, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you, if you just ignore those seven stocks and just looked at um, companies with similar characteristics, I think you'd, you'd see, okay, maybe not to the same degree, but those type, though companies with those characteristics have been outperforming. Um, and I think the other problem too you have here, and, and, and Billy, you would know this, and, and, and Dave, and anyone who's been in the markets for a long time, Larry, when you get into, uh, uh, you know, big money needs big stocks. And that was true even before you had such yep. uh, a widespread indexation. And so I guess if you're if you're defining risk as the extent to which you underperform the index, like Larry, you were saying earlier at the start of the conversation uh, earlier on uh, about what goes on in Australia. I mean, not that I would go buy Apple, and that's okay. But you know, if you're a fund, tell me how you don't buy Apple when it's what seven percent of the S and P. So. It's like one giant, I don't know, it keeps going until it doesn't. But, Billy, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. I mean, the fact that in the face of rising rates, these stocks, have, they don't seem to care. It's, it really is something to behold. Um, Michael Howell, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, hi, George. Um, good to see you. Good to hear you again. Good to be back on Spaces. Uh, Larry, awesome uh, interview. Uh, great, great insights. I want to ask you one question, the credit markets. Uh, they matter a lot for the Fed. What, what do you think? How do you see them? I, I missed the last part of the question, Michael. Could you repeat it? Yeah. The, 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 the question was your views on, on credit markets. Michael was asking what you think of credit markets. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm assuming you're talking about corporate credits, Michael? Correct. Correct. Yeah. 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 Um, well, we talked to a few, not a lot, but a few distressed managers, and basically what they're telling me is they can get 15 to 16% now on three-year loans to triple C-type companies. And I think that's where the real rate of interest is, and, and it's still available. Um, they, have, they have capital, you know, so this is private credit, not, not you know, this is, and I think that's, that's an, another area to explore at some point is there's a lot of money being committed now to private credit lending new money out of sovereign funds that we talk to and there's you know it's it's different it, it, it's different now it's a it's a much larger number and i think one of the reasons they're doing it actually goes back to the prior question and that is about uh equities i mean we've got uh, I, you probably have some of the same clients we do michael some of these guys now are doing 10-year earnings models for the equities that they own because once they buy them they can't sell them and they know that so they're looking for other outlets for long-term money and the private lending sector is, is, you know, they're giving some liquidity to it by putting more capital in it. Um, and actually I find many of these guys who do the credit work are a very good stock analyst because they're looking at the balance sheet and, and they're just investing higher up in the capital structure. So I, I don't think it's unhealthy at this point. What I do think is, is really worrisome from a credit perspective for me is uh, in the Midwest, um, we have a lot of small banks, community banks, and I've had bankers tell us that they literally have no money to lend now because the depositors have figured out over the last couple of years that 
you know, they're getting one BIP on their checking account and 10 BIPs on their savings account, and maybe they get 100 BIPs on a CD, but if they move it over to, you know, move their balances over to the money fund, they get 500. And so it's those deposits that underline or underwrite the, you know, the $10 worth of loans for every dollar deposit they have. So they're losing their deposit base. And that's the risk, I think, here is that that money just continues to disintermediate in the banking system. In fact, I ran a graph the other day about bank lending, and it's gone. It's now gone negative. And, and I think this is the reason, is uh, the, the especially for small and community banks, and it's going to work its way up to the regional banks probably sooner rather than later. Um, if, if you're a borrower, you're going to have trouble um, getting, especially if you're a small community bank. I mean, that's these guys have one way to make money, and that's make loans. They don't have other products. And this is the guts of the small economy, the small business economy, where we grow, grow jobs and start new businesses in the States. That's the part of the credit markets I would really, if I'm going to be wrong about no recession next year, that's, how, that's what will do it. Right. By the way, Larry, uh, and, and, uh, Michael's been very, uh, uh, I think he shares your views, particularly, Michael, I don't know if you wanted to weigh in on your gold view. I know it's been sort of top of mind if you're recently in the whole liquidity thing. You've been big on expanding the balance sheet and liquidity increasing uh, for, from the perspective of the central banks. And I think you believe gold is going to feature prominently uh, uh, as a result. I'm not sure who's more bullish on gold, Michael, Larry, or yourself. So... <laughs> <laughs> so it's, a, it, it, it's a fight. Uh, we put out a research note this morning, which set a target for gold at six thousand dollars an ounce. So that uh, that may be put into perspective. And the reason is that there's going to be an awful lot of money printing to pay for this debt. And I'm, you know, I'm upbeat on markets, and I think George knows. I mean, our view is that global liquidity drives everything. We track that. I've done that for decades. Uh, the cycle bottomed in October of 22. It's rising, maybe not in a straight line, but it's rising until 2025. And so, you know, I think everything you have said, Larry, is music to my ears because it's exactly how we see things from a different perspective. That's, yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's always good. That's great. That's great. Michael, stay up there. You might have another question here for some others. This is great. Uh, we've got, uh, let's see. Ivy, uh, Madison, please. The floor is yours, Ivy. Do you have a question? Yes. Hi, George and Larry. Thank you for taking um, me. Uh, this is a great informative space. Um, Larry, you've given us some good targets for gold and treasuries. Do you have a price target for the S&P 500 for uh, 2024 peak? Yes. <laughs> Do you do you care to share it? <laughs> you said we're going to go on a pretty good run here, so I'm curious um, how high you're thinking. I think uh, I, I, with, 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 I'm going to tease you, Ivy, but um, it's you know I think getting direction getting direction is a big enough. I mean, you can put him in the positive column. That's that's important, and he's very bullish. And I, I don't know. I think I don't want to put words in Larry's mouth, but I I think. It'd be sheer speculation, not that we do anything otherwise for a living, but um, Larry, maybe if not in terms of level, but in terms of time, you said you thought what the market would be buoyant for the first few months of the year. Did it, do I recall correctly? Yeah, uh, it, may, it may last into the mid, mid cycle part of the year, but basically the first quarter should be good. And, and if we get a correction that passes uh, muster in about April, it'll, it'll go up 
basically for the rest of the year. Now, if that's the, if that's the, that turns out to be the case, um, my S and P targets about the same as Michael's gold target. There you go. Thanks for the question, Ivy. Uh, Futurist, the floor is yours. Do you have a question? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I got into the space right right at the end when you were talking about the the banks and individual um, depositors. I'm really curious, um, and I don't know if you've already touched on this, um, but it, it really, at least, I'm from Florida. Um, I recently had um, a Chase account closed with a lot of money for absolutely no reason. Um, we have a lot of people in Wells Fargo now facing the same thing. And from what I hear or understand from what you were saying is that all these banks, uh, the major banks, um, obviously, are all of a sudden closing all these accounts. And I guess the ramifications of that is there's going to it's going to push for a recession faster because obviously a lot of these um, individual deposits are the, what supports loans, which they're not even giving. Right. So you're first giving loans at very high. First, they're higher interest rates than normal. you got to put 50 percent deposit, literally, at least in Florida, if you want a house. Um, and if you can't get the insurance on the house, which is impossible, um, it's really going to be cash. So it's like this completely different market that it's man made. I, I don't see this as a cycle. So I, I'm just curious to know what you guys think about what's going on. Mm. Um, man-made is a good term, I think. Uh, there's got to be a reason why certain banks are going after. Sounds like you know you're you're a top-tier customer. Uh, it. I was speaking more to the small bank and community banking uh, part of the market, but I have heard from other places in the country exactly what you're describing, where people's accounts are being closed for apparently no reason, but there is a reason. Um, what, what was it JP Morgan said? There's a reason for everything, a good reason and the real reason. So I don't know what the good reason is they're giving you, but the real reason it seems to me is, is they're trying to reduce their exposure to something. And maybe the something is the housing market. I know I looked at a number this morning that the new build construction home average price now was down about 20% year over year. It's different if it's an existing home. But maybe that's what they're trying to get, you know, one of the things anyway, one of the uh, asset that they're invested in, they're trying to reduce their exposure to. But it's still, it doesn't make, I owned part of a bank once years ago. Um, and I used to sit in the credit committee things, which were excruciating. Uh, <laughs> I've never, never had a desire to go back and do that again. Um, it may be regulatory, now that you're making me think about this, because I sat through some of those regulatory meetings too when the FDIC would come in or we had a state charter or the OCC. And it, it, it was reminiscent of what you're describing, where they would find banks that they, they thought they had problems with. And it was just almost indiscriminate what they would force those banks to do in terms of reining in their, their lending book and what they could lend on. I mean, basically, they, they would shut them down without shutting them down publicly. Right. Thanks for the question. Thanks for the question. All right. So, again, if anyone's interested in Larry's uh, um, getting his stuff, uh, you know, DM him or um, you can reach out to him at uh, Larry.Jedelo, J-E-D-D-E-L-O-H, Larry.Jedelo at TISgroup.com. Um, dot net. Dot net. Sorry. My bad. My bad. All right. This has been terrific. Um, 
I think we're going to call it a night. Uh, Larry, this is, this is great that you came by. Uh, look forward to having you again uh, in the future. And um, for everyone else in the room, we'll be doing another space next week with um, Dave, Dave Lundgren, formerly of Wellington. Um, so hopefully we'll get back in the saddle and make these spaces a regular feature again. So, Larry, I want to thank you so much. Everyone's learned a lot and um, hope you've enjoyed it and you've learned something as well. And uh, good night to all. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks, George. Take care. Bye.